sunrise, once a day. Sunset, once a day. Every day. You, you can't stop the sun from rising. You may not see it rise, but it rises. It's done it for thousands of years, just like clockwork, but better. Sunrise, every single day. Birthday or Christmas Day, once a year. Wedding anniversary, once a year. Not daily, but annually. Olympic Games, every how many years? I know this is really petty of me, but at moments like this, New Zealanders just get petty because we can't help it. So unfortunately, the Palms won that one. But it looks to me like New Zealand was second. Every four years, Olympic Games, I could have said Commonwealth Games too. Every four years. Halley's Comet comes by every 75 years. Don't worry if you missed it last time, it'll be back 42 years from now in 2061. Every 75 years. But there is an event that happens only once. Just once. The greatest event known to humankind. Just once. Jesus spoke about it when he said in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Then he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am there you may be also Jesus spoke in John 14 about this once in history event the second coming of Jesus Christ Paul wrote about it Jesus talked about it. The book of Revelation mentions it. And even though it hasn't yet happened, it is as sure as night follows day that the second coming of Jesus is going to take place. We live in a world where there is pain. We live in a world where there is insecurity, where there is injustice, where there is sickness and where there is death. But one day, the return of Jesus will take place and it will swipe away, sweep away all the negatives, all the hurt, all the, well, what does the Bible say in Revelation chapter 21? It is a beautiful passage. Revelation chapter 21, speaking about what God is going to do when it says that God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there will be, tell me what, there will be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any, what? pain thank God for the former things are passed away too many of us get out of bed in the morning and ugh, back hurts hips hurt knees hurt something hurts one day no more hurting one day no more eyeglasses or contact lenses or walkers or wheelchairs thank God no more medication one day Jesus is coming back to this earth and all of that stuff brought about by sin will be gone now of course there are plenty of questions about this event 
Questions such as when will it happen? What will it be like? Who will be here on the earth when the second coming of Jesus takes place? And what happens next? What happens after the second coming of Jesus Christ? And so let's ask ourselves when it's going to happen. And we'll allow Jesus to answer the question. He said, of that day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, we don't know when the second coming of Jesus is going to take place, except that we can know that it is near. Jesus said, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. How near? So you also, when you see all of these things, know that it is near even at the door, Jesus said. So we've already spoken about the signs of Christ's return. We did that the second time we got together. And Jesus spoke about wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilences and all manner of things, really. And when we see these things and when they are like birth pains, when they become more frequent and more intense, then we can know that the return of Jesus is near, near. We don't set dates. But we know or can know when the return of Jesus is near. Now, I mean, you can look forward to the return of Jesus and you might say that seems like a long, long way away. I remember my brother asking my father once when we were kids, Dad, when do you think Jesus is going to come back? And he said, oh, son, probably another 500 years. And when you're a child, 500 years might as well be 5 million years. But the return of Jesus is going to take place and we're making progress towards that time. A man named George Megan became the first person ever to walk from the bottom of South America to the top of North America. He started a little town way down in the bottom of Argentina and he walked up through South America, got to uh, through the, the, the Mexican border into the United States and walked over, I believe it was to Washington, D.C., then across the United States and all the way up through Canada to Prudhoe Bay. 19,019 miles, 41 million steps. My goodness, how do you walk 41 million steps just like this, one step after another? And as one day passes into another, we get closer and yet closer to the return of Jesus so that we're at that time where Jesus said his return is even at the doors. That's where we are now. Now, when you talk about the return of Jesus, you'll hear people mention the rapture. What's interesting is that the word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible. That's okay. The word millennium doesn't appear in the Bible either. And yet the Bible refers to that 1000 year period. The word rapture simply means a catching up or a catching away. And when Jesus comes back, the Bible is clear that his people will be caught up to meet him in the air when he comes back. You'd think, I would think, that a subject like the second coming of Jesus would be of the utmost importance to all and any believers. And you would think that every believer on the planet would be doing everything she can, everything he can to be ready for this great event, the second coming of Jesus Christ. I remember being on an international flight a lot of years ago, flying back from Singapore, and the plane didn't push back when it was supposed to push back. And we waited, and we waited, and we waited. I can't tell you how long now, this was years ago, it seemed like an eternity until finally the offender stumbled his way onto the airplane. You see, he stopped at the bar in the airport and 
had a few drinks and, and fell, asleep, fell asleep in the bar. All he had to do was be ready to get on that plane. That's all. Not the hardest thing in the world. He knew when it was going to leave. He knew what time he had to get through security. He knew what time he had to be there to board the plane. All he needed to do was get on that plane, but people had to go searching for him. And they did find him, but he had fallen asleep. I tell you, you don't want to fall asleep while you are or should be preparing for the return of Jesus. That's absolutely the last thing that you want to do. Jesus came to this earth once before. He came born as a baby in Bethlehem, the little town of Bethlehem, just about this far from Jerusalem. And when he came into the world 2,000 years ago, you'd have thought that everybody in town would have been ready to meet Jesus and they would have been excited about the prospect. That's what you would think. The scriptures spoke about the return of Jesus. It just did. Again and again, Daniel said roughly when Jesus would be born and forecast exactly when Jesus would be anointed as the Messiah. Micah said where Jesus would be born. The prophet Isaiah Isaiah spoke about many of the circumstances surrounding the, the birth of Jesus. And yet for all that, when Jesus came to the earth, the wise men had to inquire in Jerusalem, where is this one that's born the king of the Jews? And they said, what? What's that all about? And they sent the scribes or the... the, the, the experts in scripture off looking and they came back and said well yes he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem at some stage the wise men knew they were wise but the rest of the people in town they'd fallen asleep we don't want to make that mistake the Bible says that Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 53 of his book he was despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You would wonder then if the people to whom were committed the oracles of God had been waiting for millennia for Jesus to appear as Messiah and they missed him even though he was in their very midst, you'd think it's possible then for people down here in the close of time to think about know about, hear about the return of Jesus and not be ready for that event. And if you thought that, you'd be right. This is what Jesus said. He said, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Man, that's a serious warning. There were, I don't know how many people on the earth in that day, I've heard people say maybe two million people, maybe more. However, in spite of the fact that there were multitudes of people on the earth in Noah's day, only eight people got on board the ark. Just eight. That's got to make you think. Noah spoke to the people there for 120 years and urged them to get on board. No, only eight people did. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 24, Therefore, be ye also ready. It's a warning from God. You don't want to make the mistake of being not ready. It's a warning from God. He knows that the vast majority of people will not be ready for the return of Jesus. And he wants us to be saved. God tells us about the second coming of Jesus. Paul referred to it in his letter to Titus as the blessed hope. And it's not hard to understand why. 
When Jesus comes back, there'll be no more death. When Jesus comes back, there will be no more war. When Jesus comes back, there'll be no more separation, no more pain, no more marriages dissolving, no more broken homes, no more suffering. There won't be any crime or hatred or racism when Jesus comes back. It is no wonder that the last prayer in the Bible is a prayer for the return of Jesus. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20, John the Revelator wrote, Even so... Come, Lord Jesus. He was looking forward. What a day that's going to be when Jesus comes back. John, who was under house arrest on the island of Patmos. John, who according to tradition, and you notice I emphasize that, there was an attempt on his life, I was told, as a child. They attempted to kill John before the end of his life. Now, I said that's tradition, but John lived through some things. He lived through persecution. He lived through difficult times. He prayed, even so, come Lord Jesus. And the Bible speaks to us about the return of Jesus in the book of Acts chapter 1, where it says this. Now, when he, Jesus, had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sights. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? And if you saw somebody taken up and gravity was no longer keeping their feet on the ground and up he went, you'd be gazing up towards the heavens as well. The angel said, this same Jesus, which was taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. You don't want to miss this. They watched him go up. And the angel said, he's going to come back the same way he went up. This is instructive because as you want to know about the return of Jesus and what that's going to be like, you'd be surprised that there's really clear instruction, clear guidance. Some of the plainest statements in the Bible refer to the return of Jesus. This same Jesus, so let me say this, this same Jesus, who you saw go up, will come back. The same Jesus. So the return of Jesus isn't when you accept him into your heart. The return of Jesus isn't something invisible. The return of Jesus isn't merely a spiritual experience. The return of Jesus is the real thing. We can know that it is actually a literal event. The real Jesus is really going to return to this real earth and it'll really happen. The return of Jesus will be really literal. And notice this. You know, when you start... Uh, finding the passages of the Bible that speak to the subject and you just read them, things become really clear. It says in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds. And, and what? And tell me, and every eye shall see him. That's what the Bible says. Every eye shall see him. Matthew 24 verse 30 says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Notice he went up with clouds and Jesus said he is coming back with clouds. He went up and he's coming back in like manner as you have seen him go. Jesus said in verse 27, just three verses previous to the verse we just looked at. As the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the son of man be. How clear is that? 
Now, you can see lightning with your eyes shut. You can be in the dark and the lightning will flash and suddenly it's like the midday sun. It's bright, man. You cannot miss it. And Jesus said that his return will be like lightning shining out of the east even unto the west. And so what we know is that the return of Jesus will be both literal and visible. You can't get around that. It's really very clear. And I'm glad. What's it going to look like? I had a thought once I was in my, we had a, a swimming pool in our backyard when we lived in North Carolina. And you know, the weather in North Carolina, in the United States, very different to where I grew up in New Zealand. I mean, they have, I mean, weather over there. I was in the pool and I, and I knew I probably should get out because the weather was starting to look ominous, but the clouds got low and the clouds kind of turned green almost. And, and, and they weren't moving like they ordinarily move. Some were moving this way and some were moving that way. It's like there was a roiling up there in the clouds. And it made me think of the second coming of Jesus, that we'll look into the sky and it won't be business as usual. It'll be a little different. It's something we're going to see. We'll see the most remarkable things. The Bible says that when Jesus comes back, the heavens will depart as a scroll. And you'll see things then that right now you're not able to see. So the return of Jesus is wonderfully going to be literal and visible. And when there's lightning, it's almost always accompanied by an atmospheric, uh, atmospheric phenomena known as thunder. Jesus said, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a what? With a shout. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus... We shall always be with the Lord. I've never seen a passage of scripture noisier than that one. The return of Jesus is going to be literal. It will be visible. You'll see him. It will be audible. You will hear the return of Jesus. It's as though he's going to enter the earth's atmosphere with a sonic boom. Something like that. He's coming back with a trumpet blast. He's not coming back playing a flute. He's not coming back picking on an acoustic guitar. Jesus doesn't come back with a ukulele. He's coming back with a trumpet. Trumpets are by nature loud. I remember when my brother came home from school, didn't tell us he had joined the band, the high school band. And for some reason, he signed up to play the trumpet. Oh, we were grateful that lasted about a week and a half. Man, you can't, you can't not hear a trumpet. And Jesus is coming back with a trumpet blast. Thank God he is. You'll hear him. And there's something else. In Psalm 50 verse 3 says, Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous around about him. And so what we know is that the return of Jesus will be literal. Really him, it'll really happen. Visible, you'll see Jesus. Every eye shall see him. I mean, I'm taking that to mean even the blind will see him. Every eye. You will hear Jesus return. It will be audible and it will be glorious as you might expect when Jesus comes back. What an event! Jesus returns. The cosmos will be shaken. And a people who have waited so long to see their Savior will see Jesus. He's not a fictitious uh, figure. He's a real thing. This Jesus really lived, really died, really ascended. And when I say really died, really bore your sins, really paved the way for your escape from the slavery to sin that people on this earth endure. Jesus is going to come back. You've never seen special effects like this before. It's going to be magnificent. 
Imagine what you'll hear. Imagine, imagine what it'll feel like. Imagine who you'll see. It will be Jesus coming back to this world. And I want you to know that Jesus wants you to take this seriously. It only happens once. Uh, if you forget your wife's wedding anniversary, you can, uh, I mean, you're in trouble. But you can make amends next year. Next year. You know? There's going to be another one. If you play your cards right, there's going to be another one. But not with the second coming of Jesus. When I wore a younger man's clothes, I did what a lot of people of my culture do, or at least did, and I left New Zealand and I traveled to England and lived in England. I lived in Stoke Newington, not glamorous. N16, in Hackney Borough, very near, very near Tottenham, up there. And in order to get really anywhere we had to catch the number 73 bus it's the 73 bus that would go down to the angel islington and then really king's cross station where we catch either the piccadilly line or the victoria line they were the ones i tended to take most of the time we didn't have a tube stop anywhere nearby really so i'd take the number 73 bus and so i'd go up to stoke newington high street i think it was the high street or was it the church street it was one or the other and we'd wait outside the bus stop so, no, sorry, outside the post office where the bus stop was. And sometimes you'd get up there and there's no bus and so you'd wait. Sometimes you'd get up to the bus stop and the bus would be, you know, it had just left. And oh man, I just missed it. But it didn't even matter. Because if you missed the number 73 bus, there'd be another one along soon. They just kept on coming. I don't know how many buses plied the number 73 bus route. There were plenty of them. If you couldn't get on this one, get on the next one. They typically came in threes, at least during the busy part of the day. And you might wait just this long, and then there's another number 73 bus along. It was great. But the second coming of Jesus is not like that. If you miss the second coming of Jesus, you don't have the opportunity to say, that's okay, there's going to be another one along here in just a few moments. This is why, again, as I mentioned before, Jesus said, you be ready. Be ye also ready. You've got to be ready. You want to live in a state of readiness. That's the easiest thing to do. Jesus did not say, get ready. He encouraged us to be ready. You don't want to be casual about this. If the Bible is a document that can be trusted, and we've ascertained that it can be, if there is a God, and there's no question about that at all, if his son Jesus came into the world, and we know that happened, even merely from the historical record, then we know that Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, you want to be ready on that day. You don't want to not be on Noah's ark, as it were, when Jesus returns. He said in Matthew 24, 42, Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. If you knew the thief was coming to your house tonight at 10, you'd be waiting. You'd call the police, you'd call your neighbors, you'd grab a baseball bat, you'd do something, you'd be waiting, you'd be ready. 
If you knew when the thief was coming, you'd be watching and you would be prepared. This passage speaks to us about the timing of Jesus' return. Because we cannot know precisely when he's going to come back, Jesus says, just be ready. That'll take care of it. Be ready all the time. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. If you're ready, no, it's okay. The thief won't catch you out. But if you are not prepared, not ready for the return of Jesus, then the return of Jesus is just like a thief that comes and strikes in the night. You would take precautions for that. You'd be ready for that. That's the sensible thing to do. I read a true story, an absolutely true story, of an airline employee who's loading bags into the belly of a plane. I do not know why this happened, but the airline employee sat down or lay down and fell asleep. And so not long after takeoff, people are sitting on board the plane and they're hearing thumping underneath their feet. And they're hearing some fella shouting out, get me out of here. I'm in here. Get me out of here. It was going to get pretty cold in there. And he was hoping that somehow he could get back. Well, they did turn around and they took him back and he lost his job as you would expect. But how do you explain that? How do you explain falling asleep at such a critical and a crucial moment? Yeah, good question to ask ourselves. How do we explain falling asleep? You know, Jesus shared a parable once. It was about the ten virgins. They uh, were going to a wedding feast. Five of them took extra oil for their little lamps. Five did not. They all fell asleep. This is Jesus saying the tendency of the human heart is to fall asleep. It's to not be vigilant. It's to not watch. It's to not be ready. And so Jesus says, be ready. Peter wrote and said, but the, of that day and hour, sorry, I, I want to say that again, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. I mean, very serious. And, and, and look at this. Jesus goes on to say, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. He says now, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the son of man be. What do you mean, Jesus? What does that mean? We weren't there. What do you mean by that? He said, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Not bad things to do. Until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other will be left. He said, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. This is too clear for us to miss. Too clear. Like Noah's day. What happened in Noah's day? Well, there were two groups of people. One group of people got on board the ark. They were saved. One group of people did not get on the ark. The flood came and took them all away. This is really a sobering passage because Jesus is saying here, you got two men working in the field. So they're similar. They maybe have similar backgrounds. That's not really what's so important, but they're in a similar situation. Perhaps you could say they have similar opportunities. 
So here are two men, but one is saved and one is lost. What in the world? Why could two men, the both men, not have been saved? Because one took his opportunity, gave his life to Jesus, accepted God into his life. But the other one clearly had other and different priorities. Two women at the mill grinding the wheat. One of them is saved, one of them is lost. They're from similar backgrounds. They evidently live in the same town. They might have been neighbors. They do the same stuff. They're at about the same stage in life. The old grandma wouldn't have been bringing the wheat. The young girls wouldn't have been bringing the wheat. This was what the women would do. So two women, essentially the, essentially the same person, if you know what I mean. But one saved and one lost. It's kind of madness, isn't it? Jesus is coming back and he invites every last one of us to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And why would we not? Why would we not? But what God is telling us here is that when Jesus comes back, there'll be two groups of people on the earth. One saved, one lost. One saved, one lost. Let me ask you this. Should we live in fear? Should we live even with any doubt about it? Should we live in a way that's, that represents anything less than absolute certainty about our eternal future? No, no, Jesus invites us. He invites you. He said in Matthew 11 and verse 28, Come to me. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, he said, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, if you come to me, I'll save you. Jesus says, if you come to me, you'll have life, everlasting life. Jesus invites us. He said in John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall not thirst. He says, you're hungry, I'll satisfy you. You're empty, I will fill you up. He says, I am the bread of life. Just come to me in John 7 on the last day, that great day of the feast. Jesus stood and he said, crying out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's inviting us. He's inviting you. He's saying, the return of Jesus is coming. It's soon. And you know this talk about soon. When we say soon, some people say, oh, you're prognosticating. You're setting a time. You're, you're doing this and that. Yeah, I get it. But let's think about it like this then, shall we? Let's, let's really make it real. What's the average lifespan of someone living in Australia? It's about 80 little less what year were you born I was right wasn't I second coming is soon however you frame it Jesus is coming back soon because and I hope you'll hear this as I mean to be heard when you die the second coming has essentially taken place for you you know what I mean because that's it, you, you, your destiny's set right there, that's it. There's no going back, there's no redo. It's not like golf when you can say, take a mulligan on that shot. It's over. And some of us, you know, all of us, we're getting closer to that day. If Jesus doesn't come beforehand, we'll pass away. And so no matter how you cut it, the experience of the second coming is not far away. It's just not. And Jesus says to us, come to me. Come to me and have life. Come to me and have life. That's what he's offering us, life. 
I, I, I hope you can say that your life on this earth is pretty good. Now, undoubtedly, you could say, my life could be better. I could be, you know, no pain. I maybe didn't have to have that hard experience. Didn't want to lose that uh, person to death. Didn't want to go through a broken marriage or, or something like that. But I hope that you can say, yeah, life is pretty good. I mean, you live in Melbourne. Uh, eight years in a row voted the most livable city in the world until I think this year uh, Melbourne was knocked off its perch by Zurich. <laughs> now I've been to Zurich. That's a nice place. But the winter is about seven months long. That disqualifies it as far as I'm concerned. Melbourne, much better. This is a beautiful place. You live in Australia. I mean, it's not New Zealand, but it is Australia, you know. <laughs> it's a wonderful country. It's called the lucky country, even though if you look at that, the origin of that phrase, lucky country, wasn't really meant as a compliment. It was the lucky country. It's a beautiful place. The way of life is good. Australians tend to be very positive people who just embrace life and love to live it. So life is good. Life is good. If you don't like life, you've got a chance to express your... Yeah, your, your viewpoint next week because the election's taking place. <laughs> but no matter how good your life is, it's short. James said that your life is just a vapor. It appears for a moment and then vanishes away. You know, we used to talk about the richest man in the world being Bill Gates. <laughs> Bill Gates. He's only got about $85 billion. The richest man in the world is Jeff Bezos, who, well, his divorce is going to change things, but he was worth until recently $130 billion. And you know what's going to happen to Jeff Bezos one day? He's going to die. Carlos Slim, the telecommunications billionaire from Mexico, he's going to die too. Warren Buffett, he's going to die. Bill Gates, going to die. Steve Jobs, I don't know how much money he had, but he was worth a ton of money. And he was famous and he was brilliant and he was an innovator and he died. You can't ward it off. My point isn't that <laughs> to inform you that death comes for us all. You knew that already. But life is short, man. And so if you had all the money that Jeff Bezos has, at least it's not that he has that much money, it's that he's worth that much money. If you had all that to your account, what would that get you? Well, anything you want. You could buy an island someplace. You could own your own personal jet. Uh, you could have, you know, hot and cold running everything. You could eat the most expensive this. And, 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 and you know what? Like the teenage girl in Great Britain who won a million pounds in the lottery. She said, I wish I never won it. She said, it didn't buy me happiness. I'm bored. I wish I had a life. I'm not saying that wealthy people don't have a life. And by the way, I'm not saying anything negative about wealth. If you're wealthy, God bless you. More than likely you worked hard to get there. You're entitled to it. My point is this. If you have everything that the world offers you, and that's all you have, you don't have much. Jesus said, what does it profit a person if that person gains the whole world and loses their soul? 
And this is where Jesus says, don't be buffaloed by what the world is offering you. Don't be, don't be discouraged if you don't have much. And don't be elated if you have plenty. Because this world and everything in it is going to pass away. What God offers you is something that matters. What God offers you is something substantial. You can drift through this life or you can say there is a God and I'm welcoming him into my life and the reality of the peace of heaven becomes yours. I just watched something produced by a friend of mine where he spoke to a young lady and she described her hellish life. She described how she'd been repeatedly raped and, and, and gun held to her head on multiple occasions. She worked as a prostitute and she was addicted to all manner of drugs and she said her life was hell. And thank God not the majority of people are in that situation. But she said, then I learned that God loved me. And I knew I couldn't get any lower. I welcomed him into my life. She said, my life has been changed. This is what God does. He changes your life. Gives you hope. Even if your life hasn't bottomed out, when Jesus comes into your life, he gives you purpose. You get to live for something. You get to live for someone. You get to unite your life with the great God of heaven who gave his son Jesus to die for the sins of the world. And you say, you know, irrespective of what happens in this world, and I'm working for the best, there's a world to come. This is why Jesus says, be ready. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. It would be foolish to miss that. Don't miss that. And there's another thing, too, that we ought to think about. If it's true that Jesus died for you, what are you going to do about that? What are you going to do about that? When somebody gives you a gift, you don't just shrug and move on. You turn and say, thanks. You might even be greatly indebted to that person. Jesus didn't merely give you a, a gift as we think of gifts. He gave us the gift, everlasting life. What are you going to do about that? Somebody died for you. And all the prophecies of the Bible coalesce. They come together in this one great event down in the close of time, the return of Jesus. And Jesus says, if you thirst, why don't you come to me and drink? There is hope for you. The last invitation in the Bible is found just five verses from the end of the Bible. The Bible says, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Jesus is coming back. When he comes back, you'll know. It won't be a secret. In fact, Jesus even warned against that idea that his return would be secret. He said, if they say to you, behold, he is in the desert, don't go. If they say he is in the secret places, don't believe them. Believe them not. The return of Jesus is going to be the greatest event ever to shake this planet. He's coming back. You know if the queen came to Melbourne. You think the queen would come to Melbourne secretly? I remember when she came to town where I was living. And uh, the, the plane, the Hercules that she was traveling in landed at our local airport. Oh, there was a big crowd. The mayor was there and the mayor's husband was there and uh, dignitaries were there. I don't know quite what I was doing there, but I was there and we were all struggling to see uh, QE2 as she got off the plane and walked across the tarmac escorted by important people. I had friends in the police and it was their job to stay up all night long across the river from the lodge where she was staying, just to stay there and stand there and make sure trouble, no trouble was going to come. 
There was secu- I mean, the security people just combed the town. They lifted up every manhole cover. They looked behind every hedge. They questioned people. They spared nothing because the queen was here. And when the queen traveled from A to B, people lined the streets. She couldn't be there secretly. It was Queen Elizabeth II. When Jesus comes back to this earth, he's going to enter the cosmos making a grand entry befitting the one who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You'll know Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, what a day that will be. We'll know it'll be magnificent. But remember this, Jesus says of that day, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that's righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that's holy, let him be holy still. So when Jesus comes back, what you are is what you're going to be. And then he says, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. One thing I've never done is win a gold medal. I did hold a world record for a while. No, I mean, I really did. It was a real world record. We had this thing. I I lived on a lake, and it was a big trout fishing area. And every year there'd be this festival, and there'd be a competition to throw the, this is a real thing, to throw the rubber trout. And so because this was the only place in the world where there was a trout throwing competition, whoever threw it the furthest was the world record holder. And so I went to the trout festival once and they said, why don't you try throwing that fish? It was a rubber fish, big rubber fish. And I said, I'll give it a shot. And they said, you know, the world record is like, I don't know what it was, pretty long. I said, watch this. And because I remember in primary school, I came first in athletics competition for throwing the discus. I was about 11 years old. I said, I know what to do. So reaching back to my days at St. Paul's Primary School and my expertise in throwing the discus where I tied actually with Joe Horner. I was 12, not 11, 12. Joe was 13. We tied. I grabbed my fish and I gave it a big heave. And they marked it off and they said, huh, he beat the record. And there I was, a world record holder (laughs) for throwing... For throwing a rubber trout. Have you ever held a rubber, a, a rubber trout throwing world record? Have you? If you have never, then you should actually think with some admiration uh, on my accomplishment. World record. Lasted for about 30 seconds because the next person came up and threw that fish. Person was on steroids. But I never won a gold medal. You know why? i tell you the truth. Because I'm not good enough. That's the truth. I couldn't win a gold medal in 100 meters on a track or a swimming record or a pentathlon record or a skiing record or a... Couldn't do it. I never made the All Blacks. <laughs> the selectors really got it wrong. It's probably too late for me to do that now. I have never won a Nobel Prize, and I never will. I just won't. 
I won't win a Pulitzer Prize or an Academy Award or an Emmy Award. I sound like a bit of a loser, don't you? But I think we're all in this together, frankly. <laughs> this isn't an exercise in self-pity. It's, it's just the way it goes. You know, I'm, I'm never going to be the prime minister of anything. I won't be a senator. Probably that's a really good thing. These things are out of my reach. I'm not fast enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm, you know, never, it's not going to happen for me. These things, gold medals and world records, most world records, are earned by the elite, the absolute elite, right? If you haven't ever played for Carlton or Collingwood or St. Kilda, you're probably never going to. That's because the people who play that game at that level are freaks. They're absolutely magnificent athletes. You're not going to do it. You're not good enough. Aren't you glad that salvation is not like that? You don't have to be big enough. Fast enough, strong enough, brilliant enough. You don't train hard. You don't have to be bright enough. You don't have to turn in a good performance and impress the judges. It's not how salvation works. With salvation, instead of training to be the best, one simply comes to God and believes in Jesus by faith. One says, I understand that the wages of sin is death and that I'm a sinner, but I recognize that God is great and Jesus is a wonderful Savior. I believe he's my Savior. I claim his righteousness. I believe that he forgives me and therefore I know that I have forgiveness. That's it. And you didn't have to climb Mount Everest or swim across the Tasman Sea in order to achieve salvation. It's given to you as a gift. Wouldn't you like a gift like that? Huh? There's no other gift like it. And you don't have to say, I'm too dumb. You don't have to say, I'm too weak. You don't have to say, I'm too sinful. Because none of that's the point. Jesus said, if you'll come to me, I'll give you life. If you'll come to me, I'll give you rest. And so as we look forward to the second coming of Jesus, you might say, oh, I'm not going to be able to be ready for that. I'm not good enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm not bright enough. I'm, you, you could say that. I've messed up my life. I've sinned too bad. I bumble and stumble. But you don't need to say that because your fitness for the second coming has nothing to do with your strength. It's just to do with whether you make room in your life for God's strength. Know this. It was God who said that his strength is made perfect in weakness. You don't have to be strong to be saved, but you have to be weak. And if you can admit to being weak, God says, I can unite my strength with your weakness. And now you have the strength of God in your life. You see, what I know is you can know all about the how of the second coming, literal and visible and audible and glorious. You'll see him. You essentially feel it when it happens. You'll hear Jesus when he comes back. You can know the theory. The theory is good. But how about in practice taking hold of the second coming of Jesus as your hope? As your hope. Not hope as in, hmm, I hope I'm ready. But hope as in, I know I'm ready. Because I've invited Jesus into my life to be my Lord and my personal Savior. And when you do that, well, you don't have to be like the group of people who call to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them when Jesus returns. They are described in Revelation chapter 6. 
It's interesting. You know, they say, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Lamb. The wrath of a lamb. I mean, if you're going to be scared of something, be scared of a bull. Be scared of a lion. Not a lamby. But here's Jesus, a lamb. They can't bear to be in his presence. They say, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. But on the other hand, there's another group of people described by Isaiah in Isaiah 25 and verse 9. It will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The question is this. Yes, after having ascertained that the return of Jesus will not be a secret, the return of Jesus will be visible and literal and audible, and that we need to be watchful and ready. The question is, are you ready? And if you're not ready, you can be ready. And don't tell me you don't want to be ready. You're going to say, oh, I'd rather not live eternally, John. I'd rather drop dead of a heart attack at 61 and say, well, I had fun. No, you don't want to do that. You want to develop your faculties. You want to meet people you've never met and go places you've never been and know God like you've never known him before. You want to spend eternity with Jesus. You want to be in the new Jerusalem, a place where the streets are paved with gold. The gates are made out of pearl. The walls are made of gold also. What a place. You want the river of life, the tree of life. You've got to have that throughout eternity. Why would you not? If somebody stood outside tonight as you were leaving giving out $100 notes, you'd take one. You wouldn't say, oh, no, I'm fine. You'd take one. If they were giving out tens, you'd take one. If someone flipped a dollar coin, you'd say, I might as well. And here's Jesus. He wants to flip you salvation. He says, here, take this. I want you to have salvation. And you go, oh, really? How do I have this? And Jesus says, just believe. Believe. And you can know for sure that you can be ready for the greatest event in the history of the universe. Believe. Or just believe. Well, believe. And that belief changes your life. You get to know God more and still more and still more. But that's God's work. He'll do that work in your life as you let him do it. What are you looking forward to? What are you looking forward to? A few more years and then... Or are you looking forward to the best? Life isn't the best. The best is yet to come. God is saving the best for you if you want it, if you'll have it. This great event, the prophets spoke of it. The patriarchs looked forward to it. The disciples in the time of Christ spoke about it and wrote about it. We can experience it. Jesus is coming back soon. I read a story about a man, a homeless man, had no money, had no nothing. Had no food, had no friends, didn't have any family nearby, lived under a bridge. The winter was cold, there was snow everywhere one winter's day. Two boys took their sleds to the hill. You know, the bridge was over, there's a riverbank or something on either side. So the boys were taking their sleds up the hill and riding their sleds down and take it back up and ride it back down and take it back up. And they got close to the bridge and there they were under the bridge and they looked over and there was a man sleeping. Except, of course, he wasn't sleeping, he was dead. He had died in the night from hypothermia. He didn't have warm clothes. He had barely any, I mean, scruffy clothes that he wore. 
He didn't have regular food. This was the, the, the man that you see fishing into rubbish bins looking for food, climbing into dumpsters hoping to find something in the dumpster. Didn't have any money. He begged. Everywhere he went, he begged. And so he lived as a poor man, as a lonely man, as a cold man, as a hungry man. And he died a lonely death under a bridge in the middle of a frigid winter. The man didn't know that he had an aunt, a great aunt, and she was worth millions. She lived in New York City. And in her later years, and this is an absolutely true story, she contacted her attorney and said, I don't have much longer. I want you to find every relative that you can find and divide my estate among them. She died while the man was still alive, and she left him something like 20 million U.S. dollars. And there he was sleeping under a bridge, begging for food, getting by wearing scruffy rags. You know what the man could have done? He could have bought the clothing store in town and a restaurant and a supermarket. He could have bought the five most expensive houses in town and still had a ton of money left over. You know why he died homeless and hungry and cold and broke and alone? You know why? The reason he died in those circumstances is because he didn't know who he was. He didn't know that he was the nephew of a fabulously wealthy woman. He didn't know that he had family members in high places. And so he lived a homeless man's struggling life. He stayed under a bridge. He slept on cardboard. He didn't have a blanket to keep himself warm. Because he didn't know who he was. Do you know who you are? Let me tell you who you are. You are a son, a daughter of the King of Heaven. Your elder brother is Jesus. Do you know who you are? Do you know that you have hope tonight? Do you know you have hope? Did you know that Jesus died for you? And he's coming back soon to take you home. You can afford to leave this place tonight confident. Hold your head up high, not in an arrogant, proud way, but in a confident way. And say within yourself, I know who I am. I am a child of the king. Jesus is coming back soon. And when Jesus comes back, I'm going home to be with him forever. 